We like to imagine we live in a world of law and order. The laws of nature, the rule of law, law and order. These words make us feel safe, in control. But what about the things we cannot control? We are surrounded by uncertainty and insecurity, no matter how hard we try to maintain the illusion that we determine our own future. No matter how hard we fight to maintain control, to make the world make sense, there is always something lurking beyond our fragile structures. An arbitrary and capricious force which cannot be predicted, which does not discriminate and does not care. Violence, accident, disaster, war, chaos. The Grey Gem. Trembling, the dwarf stumbled forward, his terror clutching at him with cold, sweaty hands. He had only the vaguest idea what he feared, a fear enhanced by a certain suspicion that has been niggling at his mind for centuries. He'd never admitted to it, never explored it, and the possibility was too dreadful to contemplate. He'd certainly never told any of his fellow immortals. Reorks considered calling on Paladine, Tachesis, and Gillian for aid, but that would mean explaining to them what he was afraid he might have done, and there was always a chance that he could halt the Irda in their madness. No one would ever be the wiser. And there was always the chance that he was wrong, that he was worrying about nothing. The dwarf increased his speed. He could see a flicker of gray light now. You can't hide from me long, he cried out and barreled ahead. Keeping his gaze fixed on the light, Reorks didn't pay much attention to his immediate surroundings. He crashed headlong through the bushes, tripped over exposed tree roots, slipped on wet grass. He thumped and thudded and made noise enough for an army. The noise disturbed the Irda in their concentration. They thought it was an army, the return of the black armored knights, and that increased their fear and desperation. They urged the decider to hurry. The dwarf reached the grove of pine trees, the gray light welled out from the center. He could see it shining sullenly through the intertwined branches. Reork searched for a place to enter, but the pines stood as close as soldiers drawn up in battle formation, shields held up to present a solid wall against the enemy. They would not permit even the god to enter. Panting and cursing in frustration, Reorks ran around and round the grove, seeking a way inside. The silver ringing increased in intensity. The gray light dimmed a bit with each blow, then shone brighter. Reorks was certain he knew what was happening, and his terror grew with his certainty. He tried shouting out for the Irda to stop, but the ringing hammer blows drowned out his cries. At last, he gave up yelling, quit running. The rotund god sucked in his breath, wedged his body between the trunks, and struggled and heaved, and eventually, with a gasp, burst out the other side. Just at that moment, just as he staggered out into the glade, blinking in the brightening light, the decider hit the spike a seventh sharp blow. A crack that was like the rending of the world split the night. The gray light of the gem flared brilliantly. Reorks, accustomed to staring into his forge fire, the light of which shone in the heavens as a red star, could not bear it and was forced to shut his eyes. The decider screamed and clutched his head. Moaning in agony, he slumped to the ground. The altar on which the gem had rested split asunder. And then the light blinked out. The dwarf risked opening his eyes. The altar where the gray gem rested was now dark, not a natural, normal darkness, but a terrible, foreboding darkness. Reorks recognized the darkness. He'd been born of it. 
He tried to move forward with some wild and panicked idea of repairing the damage, but his boots weighed more than the world he had once forged. He tried to cry out a warning to the other gods, but his tongue was made of iron, would not move in his mouth. There was nothing he could do, nothing except tear at his beard in frustration and wait for what was coming. The darkness began to coalesce, take shape and form. It took the shape of mortal man, not in homage, as do the gods when they take man's shape, but in savage mockery. It was a man enlarged and gorged. A giant emerged from the darkness, grew and grew until he stood taller than the pine trees. He was clad in armor made of molten metal. His hair and beard were crackling flame, his eyes pits of darkness, and in their depths burned rage. Riark sank, shivering to his knees. The giant roared in triumph. He stretched up his arms, broke through the boughs of the pines as if they were made of straw. His fingertips brushed the clouds, tore them into rags. The stars, the constellations, glittered in terror. Welcome to D&D Book Club. My name is Megan, and today we will be discussing Dragons of Summer Flame by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, published in 1995 by TSR Incorporated. This episode, like the previous episode, will be divided into two parts. This novel is simply too long and too dense, and I have too much to say about it to fit it into a 45-minute episode. This novel will also be our last foray into the world of Dragonlance for a while. The next episode after part two of Summer Flame will feature our first Ravenloft novel, Vampire of the Mists by Christy Golden. Don't worry though, we will be returning to Dragonlance in a few months and there will be Dragonlance bonus episodes available on my Patreon very soon. Dragons of Summer Flame has a special place in my heart. Now, I'm not a big believer in choosing favorites. I don't have a favorite movie or a favorite band or a favorite video game. Picking favorites forces you to rank the things you love, and even if you are willing to do that, favorites are constantly changing anyway. That being said, if I had to choose a favorite Dragonlance novel, I would choose Dragons of Summer Flame. It has everything you could possibly want from a Dragonlance novel. Dragons, knights, gods and goddesses, action, romance, moral quandaries, interplanar travel, and the biggest, baddest, big bad of all time. It ties up every story thread from both the Chronicles trilogy and the Legends trilogy, as well as the second generation novellas, in ways that are like 99% satisfying. I do have a few gripes with the novel, but they're small ones, and we'll get to them in time. If you enjoy Dungeons & Dragons novels as much as I do, please support the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash dndbookclub. That's D-A-N-D-D-bookclub. For $5 a month, you'll be helping to support the podcast and you'll get access to exclusive monthly bonus episodes. You can see the full list of Patreon exclusive episodes without any commitment just by visiting patreon.com slash dndbookclub. There will also be a link in the show notes. As usual, this episode will contain spoilers, so if you'd rather read the novel first, please stop now. 
If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at dndbookclub at gmail.com or follow me on Instagram at dndbookclub. Now, let's dive into the fourth novel of the Chronicles trilogy. Yes, you heard correctly, Dragons of Summer Flame. Twenty-five years have passed since the War of the Lance, and a lot has changed on Ancelon. The period known as the Age of Despair, the age in which the people of Ancelon have lived since the dark days of the Cataclysm and its aftermath, seemed to be giving way to a new era of peace and prosperity. The faith in the true gods, lost after the Cataclysm, is flourishing among all the races. Those beliefs which were kept alive by a plainsman named Riverwind and spread by his wife Goldmoon have been embraced in every corner of the continent. In the city of Palanthus, the powerful cleric, revered daughter Chrysania, leads the Church of Paladine, supreme god of virtue and light. All across the land, devotees of the goddess Mishakal work healing miracles. The magic users of Ancelon, who were once feared and reviled, have become respected members of society following the sacrifice of the wizard race in Majir to save the world from destruction. Magical schools have been established, and students talented in the magical arts flock to them. The Knights of Salamnia, ancient champions of justice, are once again renowned as heroes after centuries in ignominy. They have brought peace and order to the nation of Salamnia, the greatest and most powerful of all the human nations, and serve as a bulwark against evil. They are a shining example to the rest of the world what can be accomplished when good people hold fast to virtues like honesty, honor, and self-sacrifice. But the good people of Ancelon aren't the only ones who have been inspired by the Knights of Salamnia. Lord Ariakan, favored of the Queen of Darkness, inspired by the success of the Salamnics, has built his own knighthood, an order dedicated to her dark majesty, the Knights of Tachesis. The knighthood is divided into three orders. The Knights of the Lily, dark paladins in heavy black armor adorned with symbols of death, lead the Dark Queen's forces as officers and dragon riders. The Knights of the Thorn, magic users in gray robes, not loyal to Nuatari, the god of black magic, but loyal only to Tachesis, draw their power from all three moons, the black, the red, and the silver. The presence of these magic users gives the Dark Knights a major advantage over their Salamnic enemies, who still resist incorporating even white-robed wizards into their forces, except in very rare circumstances. Lastly, the Knights of the Skull, priests and priestesses utterly devoted to the Dark Queen, support the knighthood by blessing armor and weapons and healing the wounded. The Knights of Tachesis are a deadly threat to Ancelon, perhaps even a greater threat than the dragon armies of the War of the Lance. Tannis Half-Elven, the greatest hero of that war, has long struggled to convince those in power of the danger the Dark Knights pose, but to little avail. The stage is once again set for an all-out war between darkness and light. The story begins north of the continent of Ancelon, somewhere in the Turbidus Ocean in a cluster of islands called the Dragon Isles. A small expedition of the Knights of Tachesis arrive on one particular island to determine if it might have any strategic value for the Knights' upcoming invasion of Ancelon, currently in its final preparation stages. Lord Ariakan, the commander of the Knights of Tachesis, has been warned that visiting this island is dangerous, but ignores the warning. Although wizards are allowed in the Knights of Tachesis, Ariakan is a warrior at heart, a pragmatist, not prone to getting worked up over vague prophecies. It is early summer when the expedition arrives on the Dragon Isles, but already it seems this will be the hottest summer anyone can remember, possibly the hottest summer ever. 
We are used to every summer being the hottest summer ever here on Earth, but on Kryn, it is unusual to the point of ominousness. Upon exploration of the island, the knights find creatures which barely resemble humans, more like the fantasy equivalent of Neanderthals. They use wooden and stone tools, live in mud huts, and seem not even to have their own language. The knights contemplate whether they should kill all the cave people or leave them alone, and decide there's no honor in slaughtering a tribe of helpless ape people. They haven't seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, so they don't realize ape people can be dangerous too. Seeing no reason to stay, the knights depart the island. Ariakans should have listened to the prophecy, however. The inhabitants of this island are far more than they appear. They are, in fact, Irda, members of the original race of beings created by the Queen of Darkness, who rebelled against her and were given a place to live by the gods of good in secret isolation. Isolation, which has now been violated. We've actually encountered the Irda recently. If you're familiar with the story Raceland's Daughter, which we covered in the first half of our second generation two-parter, you might remember that the beautiful traveler named Amberil was secretly a member of the Irda race. She was looking for a sexy beefcake to mate with, and unfortunately, she found Raceland instead. The Irda have lived on this island unmolested since nearly the beginning of time. Although they have a small community, each Irda is a self-sufficient loner. They only come together to make decisions for the group or occasionally to mate, an awkward process no one enjoys. There is one person on the island, however, who is not an Irida. She is a young human woman with white hair and golden eyes named Usha. Usha is considered by all, including herself, to be the fugliest person in town. It's not really fair competition, though, since all of the Irida on the island are really, really ridiculously good-looking. I want to make a brief comment here. The idea that Irida turned to good and remained beautiful, while the ogres turned to evil and became ugly monsters, is problematic to a reader in our woke new world. I mean, if you tell an ogre that they are ugly, and that they are ugly because they are evil, what choice does that ogre have but to be evil? Big, ugly brutes can be just as noble and virtuous as anyone else. Stop ugly shaming the quote-unquote evil races. Anyway, the Irida get together for a town hall meeting, and it is decided, by an Irida helpfully called the Decider, that extreme measures must be taken to prevent the knights from returning. Unbeknownst to the wider world, the Irida have come into possession of the Grey Gem of Gargath, a mysterious and powerful stone whose mystery is exceeded only by its power. The Decider plans to crack open the gem like a Cadbury cream egg and use the gooey magic inside to shield the Irida Island from all trespassers forever. Only three people see the danger in this plan. Usha, the human woman, the protector, an Irida who has been Usha's guardian since birth, and of course the person reading the novel. Usha and the protector argue that the Grey Gem is simply too powerful to be used in this way. We, the reader, if we've read the story Wanna Bet, know that the Grey Gem tells people what they want to hear in order to get its way, such as telling a certain Irida that cracking it open will allow him to save his people. The decider, however, is too arrogant to accept Usha and the protector's advice, and he's never read Wanabet, so he decides to proceed. Before he can begin, however, the Irida must do one thing. They must send Usha away to the world of humans. The magic which will be summoned by the Grey Gem will be too powerful for her fragile human skeleton to withstand. Usha, who has lived on the islands all her life and knows little of the world beyond, is devastated but the protector tells her that it must be done for her own safety. 
Usha is given a sack full of useful magical devices and a secret letter written by the protector and addressed to the dark elf wizard Dalimar in Palanthus, now the ranking magic user on all of Ancelon. With a wave and a nod, the protector puts Usha in a magical boat and sets her out upon the wine-dark sea to meet her destiny. Usha is heartbroken, of course, but she's actually dodged the biggest bullet of all time. The magic inside the Grey Gem is actually the essence of chaos, the primordial deity which existed before all creation, the father of the gods of Kryn, who was accidentally trapped in the gem by the god Reorks centuries ago. Phenomenal cosmic power, itty-bitty living space. Reorks has been searching for the Grey Gem ever since, and he manages to track it down at last, just in time to see the decider break it in two. Chaos is released a massively huge Pacific Rim-sized giant made of fire and armored in molten metal with black holes for eyes. Chaos, the father of all and of nothing, is understandably upset at being trapped in a gem for centuries. He decides that, in retribution, he is going to destroy the creation his children have made, the world of Kryn, and every living thing upon it. Then he'll come for the gods themselves. Reorks pieces out of there as quick as he can to warn the other gods and goddesses that this will be a cruel, cruel summer indeed. Usha arrives in Palanthus with her boat having magically docked itself. After a brief encounter with a rude dwarf, which may be the first time Usha has ever encountered rudeness, she heads into the city to look for Dalimar. Minding her own business, Usha is stared at by everyone she passes. At first, she assumes they are gawking at her homeliness. Soon, however, she realizes they are gawking for another reason entirely. Usha is actually strikingly beautiful when seen by people who haven't been surrounded by Irida their entire lives. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and even a beholder would think Usha is beautiful. Upon entering the market, Usha is promptly arrested when she takes some food from a vendor's cart. Usha has never been grocery shopping before, has no concept of money or private property, and assumes the food is just up for grabs. Recognizing Usha for the dangerous socialist she is, the guards take Usha into the city jail and lock her up with a bunch of kender. Fortunately for her, one of those kender is an old friend of ours, Tasselhoff Burfoot, hero of the Lance. Talking with Tasselhoff, Usha attempts to conceal the fact that she was raised by a weird cult, but even Tas can tell that there's something unusual about her, her lack of a last name for one thing. But that's not all. Usha's white hair and golden eyes remind Tasselhoff of his old traveling companion, Raislin Majir, and the stories he's heard that Raislin supposedly fathered a daughter. Usha would be just about the right age. It's enough to convince Tass, and he dubs her Usha Majir. Usha doesn't stay in jail long. Once the guards realize that Usha is carrying magical items and a letter for Dalimar, they send for Mistress Jenna. Mistress Jenna is a human wizardess of the Red Robes who runs a magewear shop in Palanthus. She is a successful, independent businesswoman who also happens to be Dalimar's lover. Upon meeting Usha, Jenna decides to take both Usha and Tasselhoff to the Tower of High Sorcery in Palanthus so that Dalimar can decide for himself what to do with them. Dalimar is the head of the Order of Black Robes on Ancelon, the highest ranking evil magic user, and the highest ranking of all magic users within the hierarchy of the Wizard's Conclave. He ascended to the leadership of the Wizard's Conclave when his predecessor, Jesterius of the Red Robes, was killed in a foolish raid on Storm's Keep, the fortress headquarters of the Knights of Tachesis. The Wizard's Conclave, it should be noted, are the only ones who have taken Tannis Half-Elven's warning seriously. Dalimar isn't sure what to make of Usha. She certainly looks like Raislin Magir, who was once Dalimar's mentor, 
but she doesn't appear to have any innate magical talent of her own. More pressing, however, is the content of Usha's letter detailing the Irida's plans to open the Grey Gem. Dalimar decides to keep Usha and Tasselhoff confined to the tower while he investigates. Meanwhile, far away, Palin Majir, the son of Karaman Majir and Tika Wayland Majir, himself a white robe wizard, sits alone on a beach, clutching the powerful staff of Magius, surrounded by the dead bodies of Knights of Salamnia. Among the dead knights are his two older brothers, Tannen and Sturm. Junior knights, Tannen and Sturm were sent on a routine patrol mission with their comrades, and Palin was allowed to tag along as magical support. The Knights of Salamnia were ambushed by Knights of Tachesis and killed to the last man. Only Palin survived and is now a prisoner of the Dark Knights. Palin is overwhelmed with grief at the loss of his brothers and guilt that he could not do more to save them. Soon after, the Dark Paladin Steel Brightblade, Knight of the Lily, arrives on the scene. Upon discovering that two of the fallen soldiers and the sole survivor are his cousins, Upon discovering that two of the fallen soldiers and the sole survivor are his cousins, the sons of his mother's half-brother, Steele makes a proposal to his superior officer, Sub-Commander Trevallon. He proposes that he be allowed to return the bodies of his dead cousins to their father, his uncle. Caramon once saved Steele's life years ago, and Steele considers this to be a debt of honor which must be repaid. He will also return Palin to his family in order that he might be ransomed by the wizards of the Conclave. This all sounds like a grand idea to the sub-commander, but there's just one problem. A Knight of the Thorn, a magic user named Knight Lord Lilith, was the commander of the forces who took Palin prisoner. She is his prisoner to do with as she pleases. The Knight Lord is bound to the same rules of honor that Steel is, so she does not object to Steel taking the bodies of his cousins to be properly buried, but she does object to Palin being ransomed so cheaply. The Knight Lord has ulterior motives as well. It was her who warned Ariakan not to send an expedition to the Irda Island, and she knows that some kind of terrible disaster is looming. She is a practicer of divination magic, and her seeing stones have predicted that two people, one represented by a white stone, one represented by a black stone, will bring doom to the knighthood. Seeing Steel Brightblade and Palin Majir together, one cousin sworn to evil and one to good, standing side by side, brought together by purest chance, the Night Lord believes that these are the two men the stones warned about. At all costs, the Night Lord wants to keep Steel and Palin apart. If they can be kept apart by death, so much the better. She demands that Palin give her the staff of Magius. Palin refuses, saying it has been loaned to him by his uncle Raceland and is not his to give away. The Night Lord cannot take the staff by force, so she decrees that Palin will be executed. Problem solved. Subcommander Trevallon doesn't like this idea. It's not honorable to execute a man for refusing to give up something which he cannot honorably give up. He asks the Night Lord to make a different demand. Reluctantly, the Night Lord says that Palin must go to Palanthus, into the Tower of High Sorcery, enter the laboratory of his uncle, Raisin Majir, and open the portal to the Abyss, which will allow Tachesis, the Queen of Darkness, into the world again. This is supposed to be impossible, but it's a win-win situation for the Night Lord. Either Palin succeeds, or he dies in the attempt. Trevallon assigns Steel to be Palin's escort, warning Steel that if Palin escapes, Steel will be executed in his place. Steel agrees, then departs along with Palin and the bodies of Tannen and Sturm upon his blue dragon, Flare. Palin and Steel arrive on the outskirts of the town of Solace, Palin's hometown. 
Meanwhile, at the end of the last home in Solace, the elven queen Alhanna Starbreeze is in labor. The pregnant elven queen was exiled, along with her husband Portheos, when a coup overthrew her reign in Sylvanesti and his reign in Qualanesti. The coup was orchestrated by members of the conservative faction within the two countries who wanted to return to the isolationism of the pre-War of the Lance days. The child which Alhana is bringing into the world would be the first ruler of a united elven kingdom in centuries, but he will be a king in exile. The elven monarchs are protected by loyal warriors, but their situation is precarious. The famous hero, Tannis Half-Elven, is acting as a kind of liaison between the elves and the other allied forces on Ancelon, and he laments to Caramon what has become of the elven nations. He also tells Caramon, by way of exposition, that he has tried to warn the allied powers, most importantly the Knights of Salamnia, about the threat the Knights of Tachesis pose to the continent. He has been politely ignored by the knighthood leadership who believe their position is too strong to be threatened by these dark knights, who will surely fail, just as the dragon armies did 25 years ago. Palin arrives at the inn, which is owned and operated by his parents, while Steel remains behind with Flair, since he can't exactly go strolling through town in his scary death metal armor. Palin tells Caramon and Tika the bad news. They are deeply saddened, of course. They love Tannen and Sturm, despite how dull they were as characters. And they are not pleased about the idea of Palin leaving again, this time in the company of a knight of evil. Palin and Caramon have a heart-to-heart -heart talk. Palin explains that he has given his word to remain with Steel and will not break it. He also tells Caramon that he has an ulterior motive in going with Steel. He wants to open the portal to the abyss, as the knights have demanded, but he wants to do it in order to rescue Raislin. Caramon reminds Palin that his uncle is dead, and typically dead people are beyond rescuing, but Palin disagrees. If Raisin was truly dead, who gave him the Staff of Magius, which was sealed in Raisin's laboratory along with the portal to the abyss? Caramon also asks how Palin intends to open the portal without a black-robed wizard and a white-robed cleric, as Raisin had done it. Palin explains that he won't open the portal, Raisin will, from the other side. Palin does not tell his father his ulterior ulterior motive, however. Palin blames himself for the deaths of his brothers and believes Raisin will teach him the magic he needs to ensure no one ever dies because of his weakness again. Steel and Palin travel by dragon back to the outskirts of Planthus and sneak inside with the aid of the Dark Knight's secret operatives. They proceed toward the tower, stopping at the Temple of Paladine along the way. Steel has painful memories of the city of Palanthus, of growing up here without parents, a child with a darkness in his soul that drove away the other children. He remembers the Temple of Paladine, however, as a place of refuge during those painful years. It is here that they encounter revered daughter Lady Crisania, the most powerful cleric of Paladine in all the land. Crisania herself once entered the abyss, as Palin is planning to do. She went in the company of Palin's uncle Raislin, thinking he loved her, thinking she was doing a great service to the world, only to realize she had been manipulated and then abandoned. She survived her ordeal, but was left permanently blind, relying on her seeing eye tiger to guide her. They chit-chat for a few minutes before moving on to the tower. Steel and Palin don't have access to the magic Mistress Jenna uses to travel back and forth to the tower, so they will have to enter the old-fashioned way by walking through the haunted, cursed forest which surrounds it. The fear spell with which the grove is enchanted is so powerful that no one has ever walked through it and survived without a special charm, save Raisin Majir himself. Despite the fear and the darkness and the creepy undead perverts constantly grabbing at them and talking about their sweet flesh, 
Steel and Palin manage to get through the grove, possibly with some help from a certain uncle. As the two cousins are ascending the tower, Usha and Tasselhoff are finishing up dinner. Tass is bored and Usha wants to escape, so they make a run for it. Holding off the tower's spectral guardians using a powerful magical artifact, the Kender Spoon of Turning, which is actually just an ordinary silver spoon which Tass stole from Dalimar's dining room. As they're escaping, they bump into two men, a white-robed wizard and a black-armored knight. Palin is stunned to see Tasselhoff, one of his parents' dearest friends, but he's even more stunned to see Usha, the foxiest babe he's ever laid eyes on. He gawks at her dumbstruck like the smooth ladies' man he is until Tass introduces her as Usha Majir, Graceland's daughter and thus Palin's first cousin. Palin is visibly distressed by this news. Steele, for his part, barely glances at her. Remember that for later. The group proceeds higher up the tower until they reach the door to Raceland's laboratory. The door is supposed to be guarded by one of the tower's specters, with clear instructions to murder anyone who tries to enter, but the specter is mysteriously gone. Palin opens the doors and Tasselhoff rushes inside, eager to see all the strange things within. Palin follows him. Steele is next, but he hesitates for a moment, and the door slams shut and will not open again. He bangs furiously on the door, but to no avail. Just then, an enraged Dalimar appears. He's quite angry at having his home invaded. After he calms down, he tells Steele that even he does not have the power to enter the laboratory. There is nothing he can do for Steele. He does, however, have a message. Subcommander Trevallon has sent Dalimar a magical Skype invite, asking to chat with Steele. Steele tells his superior officer that he has failed in his mission and lost his prisoner. The subcommander orders Steele to return to his unit at once. Usha, meanwhile, has had enough of all this and decides it's time to leave. Using one of her Irida magical trinkets, she casts a spell which allows her to become smoke-like and drifts back into Palanthus proper. Once on the streets of the city, she crosses paths with a well-dressed, black-bearded dwarf named Dugan Redhammer. Unknown to Usha, but known to us, Dugan is actually the god Reorks in mortal shape. He introduces himself to Usha and offers her a job. By now, Palin and Tasselhoff have entered the Abyss. They found the portal in Raisin's laboratory, right where it was supposed to be, but instead of being alive with magical energy, the portal seems almost inert. It was simply a matter of walking through to enter the plane of the Queen of Darkness. Once in the Abyss, Palin finds his uncle. Raisin is not being tortured by the Dark Queen, as everyone imagined, and as Palin saw during his test of high sorcery, described in the story The Legacy. In exchange for sacrificing himself to save the world, Paladine granted Raisin protection from the Dark Queen's wrath. Raisin leads Palin and Tasselhoff to a hidden location where the gods and goddesses of Kryn themselves have convened to form a strategy to deal with chaos. All the gods are there. Paladine, Gillian, Tachesis, Reorks, even the boring ones like Brancala and Shinair. After much bickering, finger-pointing, and blame-sharing, as you'd expect a family who haven't seen each other in a long time, the three most powerful gods banish the others. Paladine, Gillian, and Tachesis know that the only chance they have of defeating Chaos and his demonic minions is to unite all the mortal races of Kryn to fight together as one against him. Tachesis, tired of watching men make a mess of everything, has the solution. She suggests that her knights be allowed to conquer Anselon without a fight. Only under the iron rule of the knights can the races of Kryn be united in time to face Chaos. Seeing no other option, Paladine and Gillian consent. 
Palin knows he must return to the mortal plane and warn as many people as he can about the return of Chaos and what Chaos plans for the world. He tries to convince Raisin to return with him, but Raisin refuses. He's enjoyed the last few decades chilling in the abyss with no one to bother him. Plus, he knows that if he returns to Kryn, he will return without his magic. Raisin has not been pardoned. He's on probation. Suddenly, an evil spirit in the form of Kitiara attacks. Or maybe it is Kitiara. Either way, it attacks, and Palin is seriously wounded. His only chance is to get back to the mortal world. Raceland and Tasselhoff manage to get Palin back through the portal, and it closes behind them. Palin doesn't know it yet, but the flow of time is convoluted in the abyss. What felt like hours to him was, in actuality, weeks. So let's jump back in time to the night Palin first entered the abyss to find out what has become of Steel. After leaving the Tower of High Sorcery, Steel reunites with Flair and returns to his unit. While Steel has been traveling with Palin, the Knights of Tachesis have launched their assault on Ancelon. So far, the most important city they have captured is the city of Calaman. Calaman is an important strategic prize, but it also has symbolic value. Calaman was the first city freed by Lorana and the Knights of Salamnia during the War of the Lance. Lord Ariakan rolled up to the gate, demanded unconditional surrender, and threatened unconditional slaughter. Knowing they were overmatched, the city surrendered. Rather than loot and pillage and commit atrocities, however, the knights have allowed the people of Calaman to go on living more or less as they had before. The knights want to conquer in the name of Tachesis, but their own code of conduct forbids the brutal excesses of war. Steel is sentenced to death by Lord Ariakan himself for failing in his mission and for losing his hostage. However, Lord Ariakan does something unusual. He orders that the sentence will not be carried out for one month. Usually, the Knights of Tachesis don't waste any time chopping off heads. He also removes Steel from his usual wing of dragon riders and assigns him to the infantry unit, which will lead the vanguard in the attack on the High Clarist's tower. Steel at last understands his lord's plan. Ariakan, Steel's mentor and father figure, has given Steel the opportunity to die an honorable death in battle by assigning him to the front lines. Steel goes to sleep that night and dreams of his father, Sturm Brightblade, the Knight of Salamnia who gave his life to defend this tower, the same tower his son will soon give his life to capture. The night before the battle, Tannis Half-Elven waits in the High Clarice Tower, prepared to fight with the Knights of Salamnia to defend the tower against the Knights of Tachesis. He receives two visitors, his old friend Dalimar and revered daughter Chrysania. Dalimar tells Tannis that Palin has managed to enter the Abyss. That's bad news. Chrysania tells Tannis that the gods seem no longer to be listening to prayers. That's even worse news. In the morning, Tannis stands alone on the battlements, brooding as he likes to do before a battle. He has a kind of dream vision in which his old friend Sturm appears to him. Tannis tells Sturm that the battle is hopeless. But Sturm responds with a strange sentiment, that sometimes a victory can look like defeat. He also asks Tannis to watch over his son, Steel. Sturm knows that there is a battle being fought inside Steel's soul, a battle between the disparate aspects of his nature. Sturm fears that if the darkness inside Steel is triumphant, his soul will be lost forever. When morning comes, the attack on the High Claris Tower begins. Steel leads the first infantry assault, commanding a group of huge blue-painted barbarians, simply called Brutes, as they attempt to breach the outer curtain wall of the tower. With the aid of the magical Knights of the Thorn, Steel and his men pass through the gate and across a strangely undefended courtyard. Steel has been here before, during the events described in the story Kitiara's Son, and he knows the layout well. 
He assumes the Knights of Salamnia are waiting just ahead in ambush because that's what he would have done if he were organizing the tower's defenses. He also knows he is near the entrance to the Chamber of Paladine, where the heroes of the first battle of the High Clarice Tower, including his father, are interred. Steel loudly orders several brutes to break into the Chamber of Paladine and loot it and defile the corpses. He won't allow them to actually do this, of course, but he just wants to enrage the Hidden Knights enough to draw them out. His plan succeeds. The Knights of Salamnia charge from hiding to attack. They fight fiercely and skillfully. Even Steel is able to recognize they must have an able commander to fight with such discipline. Steel has no intention of surviving this battle. He just wants to remove as many defenders as possible to clear the way for the knights who will follow him. Steel searches for the officer commanding the knights to challenge him. To his surprise, the officer is none other than Tannis Half-Elven. Steel owes Tannis the same debt of honor he owed Caramon and cannot fight him. Just then, a Salamnic knight attacks Steel, nearly killing him, but Tannis protects his friend's son. In doing so, however, Tannis leaves himself exposed. One of the brutes stabs Tannis in the back. Tannis Half-Elven, the greatest of all the heroes of the Lance, dies in Steel's arms. The battle rages on. The Knights of Salamnia are overwhelmed and overmatched and have no choice but to surrender. The good dragons who were defending the tower by air against the evil dragons mysteriously depart. When the smoke clears, the Knights of Tachesis are victorious and Steel is still alive. He did not die as Lord Ariakan had intended, as Steel himself had wished. He reports to Subcommander Trevallon and is imprisoned once again. He remains a prisoner, along with the captured Salamnics, counting down the days to his execution, as the Knights of Tachesis consolidate their control over Ancelon. Secure in their power, the Dark Knights remain blissfully unaware of the true danger growing stronger with each passing moment. The father of all and of nothing is coming. That's where we will stop for today. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in supporting the podcast or hearing premium bonus episodes, please visit patreon.com slash dndbookclub. That's D-A-N-D-D book club. The link will be available in the show notes. I look forward to seeing you in two weeks or so for the second and final half of Dragons of Summer Flame.